We might be talking about branches some today. So this will come into play later. How's that? John 15, our text today. John 15, 1 through 17. Listen as I read. These are the words of the living God. And don't let it distract you that I'm reading from the HCSB this morning, you NASB people, because it's going to throw you way off. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore, because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to open our ears, to hear the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible is not a book of incantations of magic sayings. Sometimes we treat it that way, right? Sometimes we think, I'm just going to pick this verse out and treasure it, and then it's going to fix all of my problems, right? That's not, that's not how the Bible works. It's not a systematic textbook explaining the attributes of God. When you read it with your, when you read the Bible, hopefully you don't read it with your systematic theology book in hand, 
Some of, some of you do, maybe. Okay, your systematic theology book in hand and your Bible in the other hand and you're, you're fitting all the pieces together. And I'm saying these things uh, partly because I want you to know our NCST class is starting and the topic is intro to biblical theology. <laughs> intro to biblical theology, right? It's not systematic theology. It's intro to biblical theology. So what is this, this intro to biblical theology? Well, I'm going to find out when I go to the class. And you should too. Right? No, but a big part of what it is, is understanding who the authors were writing to, and that uh, interpreting Scripture within the framework of Scripture, right? Not interpreting Scripture within the framework of MacArthur's systematic theology. Letting Scripture stand on its own, being okay with the tensions that exist, but letting Scripture speak for itself. So that's what I hope to do this morning with this text in John 15. We've seen this in our study of John over the last year. John was a real man writing to real people in a real historical context with an audience in mind, with a purpose in mind. And sometimes postmodernism can creep into our approach to the Bible. I was an English major in college. And for those of you that know anything about English departments and universities, they are pretty well known for their existential approach to literature, right? We would be reading Huckleberry Finn. And it didn't matter what Samuel Clemens really was trying to get after, right? It, it, the questions were, what do you feel, you know? How do you, what do you think um, this means in your own mind? And every answer was just as valid as anyone else's answer. Really didn't matter what the purpose of Samuel Clemens, you guys know that Samuel Clemens was Mark Twain, right? Okay, just make it, that's my, my English uh, nerd coming out there. That, but it didn't matter, and the deconstructionism had taken over the English department that really there's no ultimate meaning, so whether Huckleberry Finn uh, or Homer's Iliad, it really didn't matter what they, were, what they were trying to convey, really all that mattered is what you read into the text. And that idea can creep into our approach to the Bible, and we can't, we can't let that do it. We can't let that happen. So what's the purpose of John? We've been here for a while. Do you guys remember the purpose statement of John? Why did John write his gospel? He said it right at the very end, chapter 20. What did he say? So that you may believe, Right? These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So everything that John's writing for us is for the express purpose of the hearers believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So we can't miss that. We have to, to look at John 15 and not pick out verses about abiding and laying down your life for your friends and all the things we're familiar with without seeing them in the big picture that John is saying, look, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And if you believe in him, you will have life in his name. If we, if we see nothing, let's not miss John's purpose statement. That's why he's writing. And his immediate audience was who? The Jewish nation, right? And there's some evidence to suggest that John wrote this after the fall of Jerusalem, in 70 AD, the nation of Israel was crushed and scattered. 
So as much as possible today, I want you to start thinking like a Jew. I want you to try and put on your historical context glasses and start looking at the text in, in that mindset and in that, con- on, in that context. And throughout the first 14 chapters of John, he's emphasizing all the ways that Jesus is the Messiah, right? We've seen that. I think Doug's done a pretty good job of pointing those things out. Yeah, maybe. Fortunately, he's on vacation and not here. And uh, we won't know. Right? That's what John's been hammering over and over again. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of direct prophecies, but he's the realization of all the symbols and all the pictures from the Old Testament. Jesus was the serpent lifted up in the wilderness so that those looking at him would have life in his name. Chapter 3, he's the bread coming down from heaven like the manna in the wilderness. John chapter 5, he's the word of God and he's the lamb come to take away the sins of the world. On and on and on, John is saying to his Jewish audience, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So we get here to John chapter 15 and it's not anything new, right? We're not preaching something, oh, now, now that John gets to abiding, boy, he's, he's saying something totally different. No, its purpose is exactly the same. He wants his hearers to hear Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament picture of the vine. I am the true vine. When his hearers would have heard that, I am the true vine and my father is the vineyard keeper, what kind of Old Testament pictures do you think were going off in their head? Any ideas? Who said Isaiah 5? Right, exactly. Let's go to Isaiah 5. I knew you guys are all over this. See, you got your Jewish context glasses on, you're reading it like like a Jewish person would, and you think, My father's the vineyard keeper. That makes me think of the prophet Isaiah. So go to Isaiah 5. And there's many times in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 19, Jeremiah 12, Hosea 10 that Israel is compared to a vineyard or a vine, a lush vine. Or, and so this is, this is the one of the most clear ones, but it's not the only one, right? So we're going to read a whole bunch in Isaiah chapter 5, and I just want you to, to see the connection here that John is showing of how Jesus is the true vine. Isaiah 5, verse 1, I will sing about the one I love. A song about my loved one's vineyard. I'm not going to sing it, so. but you can imagine it. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? What more could I have done than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? 
Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is who? House of Israel. And the men of Judah, the plant, he delighted in. And look at this. He looked for justice, but saw injustice. For righteousness, but heard cries of wretchedness. Israel was the vineyard. Israel was the vineyard that God had cared for and tilled and worked and protected and sent rain on. And he came to look for fruit. Did he find any fruit? No good fruit, worthless fruit. So the vineyard is Israel not producing fruit. And what was the fruit that God was looking for? Verse 7. Justice. Righteousness. That's the fruit that God was looking for from the nation of Israel. And it's not a new theme, right? Genesis 18 and 19, or 18 verse 19, when God reveals the reason and purpose that he chose Abraham, he said, I chose Abraham so that he would teach the way of the Lord, and the way of the Lord is to keep doing what is right and just. All the way back to Abraham. So the Lord has always been looking for the fruit of righteousness and justice. Right? You see that. And he came looking for the fruit from Israel. Wasn't there. He's looking for justice. He saw injustice. For righteousness, but heard cries of wretchedness. Jesus says, John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. So now that we've got that background in our head, how does Jesus explain the picture of the vine? He says, I'm the true vine, my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me, verse 2, that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so it will produce fruit more fruit. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Jesus says, I'm the vine, I'm the vineyard. You're not going to produce the fruit of righteousness and justice without staying in me, without remaining in me. Now, how many of you guys are thrown off by the fact that I'm saying remain instead of abide? Is that throwing anyone off? Abide? We like that word abide, don't we? Why do we like that word abide so much? You know, I'm, I'm kind of stepping on some toes because the ladies just did a Bible study on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. What was the title of the Bible study? Abide. We like that word abide. You know, we Christians, we like that word abide. Why do we like that word Abide. Right? It's got some kind of touchy-feely, just me and Jesus. We're just abiding. Just abiding. Me and Jesus. Right? And I'm not trying to knock that too much, but I want to poke at it a little bit. Right? Because 
I don't think that's, that's really what Jesus is saying. He's saying, remain. And in case we're confused about what he means by remain or live or stay or abide, he gives us a picture. The tree, the vine, right? So he says, this is me. This is you remaining in me. This is you not remaining in me. He says, you get the picture? Do we know what abide means? Do we know what remain means? And he keeps going 10 different times. He goes on and on about remain, stay with me, abide with me. You can't produce fruit. You think this is gonna produce fruit over here disconnected from the vine? So if we get nothing out of the rest of the sermon, I want you every time you walk by a dead branch and you're picking up branches in your backyard to think, oh, look how ridiculous it is not to be in Jesus. Right? I think that, if we get that point, then, then my work here would be done. Look how ridiculous that is. That, that thing's trying to produce fruit. Can't do it. So don't get hung up on the difference between abide and remain, and we're going to emphasize it over and over again. This is abiding. Right? That is not. Disconnected from the vine. So it's not a mystical element to abiding. It's not some good feeling that you get or just trying real hard to practice the presence of, of God. In this context, it's, it's simply stay, remain. It is what it says it is. Remain with me, stay with me. And uh, by the way, my wife was in the ladies' Bible study and, and it seemed like you guys were all over that. So you were, you were getting it, you were getting it. So remain, and if anyone doesn't remain in me, verse six, he's thrown aside like a branch. He withers, they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So what's the main point that Jesus is saying? Just like a branch cannot produce fruit unless it stays on the vine, so also you cannot produce fruit, any fruit, unless you stay connected to Jesus. And fruit is what glorifies the Father. Look at verse eight. My Father is glorified by this. By what? That you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. What's the fruit? We saw it in light of Isaiah five. It's the fruit of righteousness and justice. And as we go on in this passage, we'll see it's also keeping the commands of Jesus by loving one another. You can't produce the fruit of righteousness and justice and please God unless you remain in Jesus. Look back just at John 14, verse six, maybe one page. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what remaining is. It's not, it's not trying to get to the Father any other way than through Jesus. So the Jews who heard this message, Dwight did such a good job this morning. If you were in this, how many were in the Sunday school class this morning? A good a good bit of you, of setting this up for me. Thanks. 
set it apart. We didn't even compare notes. But the whole, the whole picture of the Old Testament in Israel, and as we see in this picture of the vineyard, God was seeking righteousness and justice. And the Jews who heard this message that kept trying to please the Father through keeping the law of Moses were like branches cut off from the vine. You see the ridiculousness? I'm imagining to set the picture of this, if you go back to right before we started in in chapter 15, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, get up and let's leave this place. I always thought that was an odd little statement. So they're going somewhere. So in my imagination, I say, they're going somewhere, and Jesus, they're walking through a vineyard. And they're walking and they see this vine, then they see this branch on the ground, and Jesus says, do you see how ridiculous that is? To not remain in me? To try and produce fruit any other way than staying with me? It's like that branch on the ground. Peter, James, John, it can't do it. Do you see how ridiculous that is? So I I like to have that image in my head of the disciples and Jesus walking through the vineyard. He points out a vine and as many of Jesus' object lessons, they stuck. They stuck with the disciples. So I'm hoping it'll stick with us today. Any attempt to please the Father, whether it's keeping the law of Moses, whether it's your good deeds, if you're not in Christ... You can't produce anything. Nothing. Can't do it. Cut off from the vine, trying to produce fruit. It's fruitless. In the same way, any attempt to be spiritual or please God, any religion that claims peace with God but doesn't come completely beginning and end through Christ is a dead branch. Any attempt. If you're here and you're not in Christ, there's no hope. That's the biggest problem in this entire world. We're at war with God. And there's no hope of making peace. Not through yoga. Not through just being good enough. There's no hope if we're not completely in Christ. And the Jews, I think they would have seen this and perked up and been like, oh, not the law of Moses, only in Christ. Okay, I'm paying attention. Or that would be the the desired effect. And if you're in Christ, you will produce the fruit that God desires, right? Righteousness and justice. And if you're not in Jesus, what does it say to those branches who aren't in Jesus? You gather them up. There's really, I pulled this off of a branch uh, from a tree right outside my townhome, don't tell the HOA. But there's really not much good for this, right? After the sermon illustration, it's, you know, we're gonna either throw it in the dumpster or, or find a nice campfire for it to go in. It can't produce any fruit. The only thing it's good for is, is getting burned. Now, did you notice the reward for bearing fruit, right? We're in Christ. I'm not trying to be a downer, you've been in Christ. You've been producing the fruit of righteousness. You've been with him for a long time. What's, what's the reward for producing fruit? Did you see that in verse 2? We kind of skipped over it. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. 
talking about the father, the vineyard keeper. And he, the father, prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Isn't that great? Aren't, doesn't that get you fired up? You've been faithful? Dwight, aren't you excited? You've been faithful to the Lord you're, you're, for how many, uh, let's not ask how many years, you've been faithful to the Lord? Guess what? You've been producing the fruit of righteousness? Get to be pruned some more. Right? I'm going to pick on uh, the retirees here for a moment. I can because I'm young and, you know, it's, I'm not a retiree yet. So, there you go. We live in a retirement-minded society, don't we? It's all about, man, I just can't wait till I retire. I'm going to work hard, make a lot of money, then I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to take it easy. But there is no such thing as retiring from the work of God. Is there? Can you show that one to me in the Bible? All right, I reached 55, 65. Now I'm going to take it easy. I've worked for the Lord for a long time. I've been in Christ. I've produced the fruit of righteousness. It's not well done, good and faithful servant yet, right? Enter into my rest happens when you die. Sorry. And stand before the judgment. Jesus says the reward for bearing the fruit of righteousness in this life is more pruning so that you can produce more fruit. The Father likes fruit. The Father wants fruit. So don't let the retirement mentality of our society creep into the church. Don't let it happen. Keep fighting the good fight until the end. So there's that little encouraging nugget for you guys. And I think you're doing it very well. Dwight does a great job with the Ventures Group. And so many of the people, you know the people who helped to show up uh, Bev Kreider move yesterday? A lot of you 55 plusers, you know? And I'm the one with the young back and they had me packing the truck instead of carrying the heavy stuff. But, but that just shows you the mentality of our body. Let's go after it. You producing fruit, you'll get pruned, you produce more fruit. That's the promise we have here in John 15. So the warning from Jesus is to stay with him. You know how many times he, I said that he, he uses the word remain 10 times. Jesus used the root word remain or abide just in these 17 verses. Stay with me, remain in me. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll produce much fruit. And he's speaking to his disciples. And it's actually a command, abide in me, stay in me, remain in me. Why do you think, started thinking about this, why do you think Jesus felt the need and commanded his disciples to stay with him? you think there would be a temptation to leave? And I think we see that in the history of the church. After Jesus went up to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down, we see this plays out. Either the church stays with the commands of Jesus, or it stays in Christ, 
or it goes beyond Jesus' teaching to the wisdom of the world. That's the temptation. Look at 2 John with me. There's only one chapter in 2 John. So 2 John 9. Again, you ladies were just here, so this should be familiar to you. Second John 9, and it's a hard one to find. It's one page in my Bible. Here's a warning from John. Anyone who does not remain, is that same word, remain, abide, in Christ's teaching, but goes beyond it, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. You see that? The temptation is not to stay with Jesus, but to go beyond. It's Jesus plus, as I call it. Jesus and. And in Galatians, we see this right away. Paul's addressing those Judaizers who said, ah, you know, it's Jesus, yes, but it's Jesus plus circumcision, right? It's Jesus and something else. It's Jesus and keeping the law of Moses. And Paul calls it, that's a different gospel. In chapter 1, that's a different gospel in Galatians chapter 1. How could you so quickly turn away from staying with Jesus to adding something to Jesus? And it wasn't leaving Jesus completely behind or, or eliminating him. It was Jesus and something else. Jesus and circumcision. And I love how Paul so directly in Galatians 3, 3, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? I think that has a lot of application for us today. Having begun in Jesus, are we now going to try and work this thing, this Christian life on our own by the flesh? We see that temptation a lot through the history of the church. And I, and I think we, we can have this mentality today. We think we've got this. Thanks for the boost, Jesus. Thanks for helping me out of my trouble. Thanks for helping me out of my sin, but I've got this now. I've got, I, you got me out, now I've got this. I just needed a little bit of help. Now, now I've got this. We've left Christ. We're not remaining anymore. What happens to those branches that leave the vine? Every time you see that stick on the ground, think how foolish it is to leave Jesus. How foolish it is to begin with the spirit of Christ and then try and make it on our own strength. Have we adopted that attitude? Thanks for saving me and all, Jesus. But this challenge in my life, this one you don't understand. This one you can't take care of. This one I need some outside help. Fear will tempt us to leave Jesus. We take our eyes off of Jesus and life is scary. We start grasping at other things. What are some of the things we grasp and try and add 
after salvation. How quick are you to run to your friends before you run to Christ? How quick are we to run to our family before we run to Jesus? How quick are we to run to a psychologist or a counselor before you run to Jesus? Run to Jesus. Stay with me. Remain in me. Live in me. Abide in me, Jesus says. Pride will tempt us to leave Jesus. I can take care of this myself. I've got things all together now and I don't need you anymore. We're like that branch, really? You've got this? And one person who doesn't appear directly in this passage this morning, but who Jesus had been telling his disciples about is who? The counselor, the helper, the spirit. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus didn't say, stay in me on your own strength. Good luck with that. He said, I'm sending the helper. I'm sending the spirit. You're gonna produce the fruit of righteousness because the very spirit of God is gonna live in you. That's how you're gonna produce fruit. And he gives the spirit. He gives the spirit to his disciples. He gives the spirit to us without measuring it out. Pours it out abundantly. So let's call on the spirit when we're tempted to leave. Let's call on the spirit when we're we're tempted to, to fear. Spirit, I love these prayers, using them a lot lately. Spirit, help me. Help me lead my family, spirit. Help me love you more, Jesus. Help me love my life, help me love my wife right now. Spirit, help me respect my jerk of a husband, right? We can use the spirit's power for all the things we face. And where does he go? Now back to John 15, now that I took you over to 2 John. John 15, there in verse nine. And there's so much in this section that, that we're not gonna go deep into, so, so forgive me. But I want us to catch the main point that Jesus is making, and that's remain. If we hear nothing else, here, stay with Jesus. But how do we, how do we practically remain, abide in Christ? He spells it out for us. It's not complicated. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. It's not mystical to abide. It's not mystical to stay. It's practical. Obey my commands. Love one another. We're not preaching anything new here. It's, it's the th same thing. We're just reminding each other, love one another. Stay with Jesus. John 14, 21, just you know, kind of it's easy to flip back and see this is not a new theme Jesus is bringing up. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. How do we love? How do we remain in Jesus? We keep his commands. We love one another. Now what about this comment of joy? Right in the middle here. You see that? Verse 11, I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. It's kind of an odd, odd place for joy to show up, I thought, when I was looking at it. Maybe you didn't think so. What was Jesus' joy? You thought about that? What did he delight in? This whole time we've seen in John that Jesus was walking in complete obedience to the Father, right? Over and over. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what the Father is speaking. Perfect obedience, but also perfect joy in carrying out that obedience, right? Think about Psalm 40. Talking about Jesus, we know it's talking about Jesus because of, of Hebrews 10. All right, let's flip there. Let's, let's get you turning here. Let's get you turning. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews saying, this is why Jesus came. He came to be obedient. And quoting there in verse uh, Hebrews 10 is quoting Psalm 40 in verse 7. And I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And in Psalm 40, it says, I delight to do your will. Yea, your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. It's my joy to be obedient to the Father. That's what this, this idea of joy is about. Perfect obedience, perfect joy, carrying out that obedience. And he says to his disciples that in the same way that I'm staying with my Father, that I'm obeying my Father, I'm ab abiding in my Father's love, you also remain, you abide, you live in me. And back to John 15 here, flipping around. And we're moving fast. We're not, we're not stopping to see everything. John 15. These are some, some familiar verses, right? In uh, verses 12 through 14. This is my command. Love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And it's easy to kind of, yeah, we've heard that already. But the significance, I don't want us to miss the significance of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you, my friends. And you remember Peter said back in the upper room, I'm going to lay down my life for you, Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Actually, you're going to deny me. And that came to pass. But here Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you because I love you. 
And this idea about friends, you're my friends because I've told you everything, Jesus says. You're not slaves anymore. I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. And sometimes we make a big deal about the difference between slaves and friends in the scripture, but the main point here is that Jesus is saying, I'm not hiding anything from you. Everything the Father's told me, I'm revealing it to you. That's why you're my friends, because a slave is subject to blind obedience. So Jesus is saying, I'm not hiding why I'm doing these things. I'm not, I'm not hiding the reasoning behind it. He's not saying, love one another, just trust me on this. He's not saying, love one another. You don't know why, but I'm just asking you to trust me on this. He has revealed these things to his disciples. Think about it. Oh, we love one another. We lay down our lives for one another because that shows that we're a part of Christ. We're remaining in him and the fruit that we're producing is because we're remaining in Christ. And it's the fruit of righteousness and justice and fulfills the very purpose we're created for. He shows us the whole picture. Right? He's He's saying, I've revealed everything the Father's revealed to me. And that's why he calls us friends. Because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. All right, last section here. Get excited. The disciples didn't choose Jesus. It's a famous verse, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And, uh, you know, reform camp, they like to say, see, election, there it is. You didn't choose Jesus, Jesus chose you. And that's true. Here's a clear expression by Jesus that God chooses. Now, a systematic theology might try to reconcile this truth with man's responsibility before God, but, you know, we're not into that. We're into biblical theology. We can be okay with the tension. It's okay that God chooses. It's okay that man's responsible, right? Some people make the mistake then of asking the question, why not the rest of the world? Have you heard that before? Why didn't God choose the rest of the world? Why did he only choose some? That's not the right question. The proper question, I think, the right mindset is, why did God choose me? Isn't that wonderful? If you're in Christ, it's because God chose you before the foundation of the world. Isn't that incredible? Why did God choose me? Have you ever asked that question? Well, he answers it right here. You did not choose me, but I chose you, verse 16. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit. And that your fruit should remain. That's why he picked the disciples. That's why he chose them, to produce fruit. And here's why I appointed you, to go out, produce the fruit of righteousness and justice on the earth, to love one another, to walk in obedience, to bring glory to God the Father. The nation of Israel, we saw in Isaiah 5, they were God's chosen people, to be a nation producing the fruits of righteousness and justice in the earth. Did they do it? Dwight went there this morning in Matthew 21. Jesus said, I'm taking 
the kingdom away from you, giving it to a nation, producing its fruits. If we're in Christ today, we've got a purpose. It's not just to make our lives generally better and maybe a little bit wealthier or maybe just we can feel better about ourselves. He said, I've saved you for a purpose to produce the fruit of righteousness and justice on the earth, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We were saved for a purpose way outside of ourselves. It's not, it's not just about us. It's a whole lot bigger. And we, like the disciples, were set apart, appointed to go out and produce fruit. That's a lot. I know I'm skimming over a bunch of these chunks of verses. And there's so much packed into these. And we're all growing. We're all on a journey. We're going to learn a lot more in this life, even if you've learned a lot already. And it's going to be more about producing fruit. It's going to be more about staying in the love of Christ. It's going to be more about obeying his commands. It's going to be more about loving one another. More about Jesus choosing. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep learning about him. But I want to get to someone in the Bible and wrap up here. Who, who took these words of Jesus and put them into action. Now, you might have noticed I did skip over some of the hard verses. Anyone notice some of the hard ones that I'm, I skipped over about whatever you ask in my name, it'll be done for you? I didn't intentionally skip over them, really. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address them now a little bit. And uh, verse 7, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. Incredible. Love that verse. Verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. What's the qualification? If you remain, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask the Father. And Doug covered this a little bit in chapter 14, and it's not tacking in Jesus' name on the end of your prayers, and then you'll get whatever you want, right? It's asking for the glory of Christ, for his name's sake. And we don't want to overqualify these statements. If you are in Christ, Ask big things. Ask for the glory of Christ. Ask, and it will be done for you. That's the promise. Don't, don't overqualify it. If you're in Christ, ask. And you know who was in Christ? The Apostle Paul. You might see where I'm going with this. You know who asked big things? The Apostle Paul. He asked some pretty big things. So let's turn to Philippians Philippians 1, last verse. Philippians 1, 9. And I want to show you, this was just a neat passage that we were, I was preparing for this in John 15 and we were in family devotions and we were in Philippians. Philippians 1 came up and I thought, huh, look at that. Paul is putting into practice this, all these ideas about staying in Jesus about producing the fruit of righteousness, about asking big things. Huh, look at how that all fits together. So, Philippians, if I can find it. There it is, Philippians 1, verse 9. And I want you to, to pay attention to see if you can see a nice summary. I'll let Paul summarize it for us. 
Philippians 1 verse 9, and I pray this. Here's Paul praying for the Philippians. What kind of big things is he asking? I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Filled with what? The fruit of righteousness. There it is. That comes through Jesus Christ. For what purpose? The glory and praise of God. Are we asking those things for one another? Are we praying for one another that we would grow in a depth of knowledge and insight? I think we have a lot of ways that we can grow in praying for one another. We, we have a lot of ways that we can grow in how to love one another, how to love with the depth of insight, with knowledge. For what purpose? So that we're filled with the fruit of righteousness. I want to pray that this body of believers is filled with the fruit of righteousness, growing in love for one another. Let's pray those big things because that's going to honor Christ. It's going to honor the Father. This is how Paul implemented those teachings that we see in John. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to pray that we grow in the knowledge and depth of insight and love for one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would grow in love for one another. We learn how to love one another. We learn, we put on the mind of Christ to increase in love for one another that we would remain, that we would stay in you, Jesus. And so produce the fruit that pleases the Father, fruits of righteousness and justice in your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray that we would love one another as we love ourselves. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.